I'd like to say in advance that I am not going to hold back on this, which means uh, I am going to be very negative. I want that boilerplate out up front, okay? This isn't a lamentation. It's not a bad episode. That's not quite the problem with it. Um, this is an episode that pisses me off. Some of you who've been following me for a while may recognize this pattern because this actually has already happened in Voyager. Alliances, which is a Voyager episode, isn't a bad episode. It just pisses me off, right? That's kind of what I'm talking about here. This isn't Threshold. But I have to say, in my initial preamble, you know, I always do some behind-the-scenes research. Uh, thankfully, now that we've entered the TNG and DS9 era, I have a lot of magazines for this stuff, so I've got all kinds of beside, you know, behind-the-scenes info and interviews and all that fun stuff. But the first piece of information I came across was the credits. Five writers and Corey Allen directing. And all of a sudden, it just makes perfect sense. Because... <laughs> It's just like, oh, that explains it. That's probably just confirmation bias. That's probably not actually what's what's happening here. But I have to admit, that was my knee-jerk reaction. It's like, oh, that, well, no wonder. God. I'm not a big fan of Corey Allen as a director, and this episode is kind of another reason why that is. And I'm not a huge fan of the write, written-by-committee style of writing. There are precious few times where that actually works out. It has happened. Uh, this is also a fairly classical Trek episode. In fact, I could see this episode happening in the original series with basically nothing changed other than replace Cisco with Kirk, replace O'Brien with Scotty, and replace Dax and uh, Kira with, say, uh, Sulu and Spock. Boom. The episode would fit almost perfectly into the original series. In fact, they mentioned that this incident happened ten years ago, which would put it right about at the beginning of TNG, timeline-wise. So, or a little before TNG, actually, I believe. God, where do I begin? Let me start by saying, rather than building up to this point, let me start by saying that I think one of the reasons the multiple writers problem is a problem here is because of the fact that the episode can't quite decide its own message. It can't quite decide on which side of the debate it should be on. Now, sometimes this can be a good thing. In fact, there are later DS9 episodes that deliberately bring up a moral dilemma and then never answer it because that's not the point. Um, TNG has done this from time to time as well. Voyager has done this. The original series has done this. But what, that's not quite what I mean. The episode doesn't bring up a moral dilemma at all. It brings up a cult led by a power-hungry madwoman, and then it changes its mind periodically as to whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And that's not the point of this, that type of episode. Again, the, those type of episodes bring up an idea without saying whether it's good or bad. But this episode presents it both good and bad, and then just kind of keeps flip-flopping back and forth. There's this great scene, and by great I mean terrible, where it's Cisco talking about... Uh, how he uh, how he used to work in the garden and the preference of food, right? And you know, I I don't care for replicated food, or you know, it's a preference thing. Again, I've talked about that before. And then, oh yeah, my old man, he preferred to you know work. He, he's a cook, so obviously a Creole chef. So he's got he prefers working with ingredients that aren't replicated. Okay, that makes sense. I'm with it. Um, and then we cut over to O'Brien, who's saying, oh man, 
My wife would love this place. Might not even want to leave. And then we immediately cut to the punishment box. Now, I do, I am grateful for the fact that the episode does not try to sugarcoat what that box is. That box is torture. And the episode flat out calls it it, which is good because it is. It's almost impossible to talk about certain concepts in this episode without dipping into the controversy concept, the controversy box. So just consider that down for the whole episode here, okay? Because while punishment is certainly a concept that needs to exist, while some kind of thing like that has been morally shown to be necessary for human society and blah, 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 I tend to be very against the idea of cold-blooded torture as a method of punishment, whether the community has agreed to it or not. Also, I don't believe that for a second, but that's because Alexis is full of crap. She spins her own yarn and manipulates and deceives constantly. She's not even sorry about it. She is a scum-sucking, disgusting, despicable woman. I almost want to give credit to the actress. The word Cisco actually uses for her is contemptible. But for me personally, she is the type of character I want off my screen. Now, on the off chance you've never heard me talk about this, in brief... There's a difference between a character that's disgusting and despicable and awful and you love it and you just want more of them. Like Kafka, for me, for example. I mean, he's a monster, but yeah, more, right? Or Xehanort over in Kingdom Hearts, you know, something like that. And then a character who is despicable and disgusting and awful because you, the viewer, are no longer enjoying this character. There's a, there's a distinction between those two. We would use the exact same words to describe them, but the difference is the former is someone you want to see more of, and the latter is someone you want to see leave the show. I usually use the term, get off my screen for this type of character, because I literally don't want them present in this fiction I'm, I'm perceiving anymore. And that's what she is for me. Every time I saw her on page, I had to calm myself for just a second because of how much she pissed me off. Probably doesn't hurt that I've known people like her in real life. Or it probably doesn't help, excuse me. So here's the thing. Before we go anywhere, we have to decide something about her. Because there's really two broad options. And I would love to hear your guys' comments. In fact, I'm expecting to hear some defense of this episode. Um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see your guys' thoughts. Perspective number one is that she's insane. Sorry, I shouldn't say that that way. That's my opinion. Is that she believes her own crap is that she is a legitimate zealot, a true believer in her own dogma. Option number two is that she doesn't truly believe in it. Probably a little bit. She probably does have the ideals. She probably does have the perspectives. And yet, she has to be on top. In other words, she is completely okay with violating her own creed and going against her own belief system if it benefits her personally. The way I'm phrasing this probably makes it obvious which of these I think it is, because I think there's plenty of evidence to indicate that this woman is a tyrant, a dictator in the negative sense of the word, someone who has absolutely established total control because she wants it. And virtually every interaction between her and everyone in this episode makes me think that way. She probably does legitimately believe her own philosophy to some extent or another, but her willingness to deceive newcomers and her own people, her constant usage of the carrot and the stick method in order to control people, her constant uh, efforts to break Cisco, because let's make this very clear. She is not trying to get Cisco to join their community. She's trying to break him. 
Everything about what she does does this. I wrote down a dozen notes, but I mean, honestly, it's very simple. Um, we have regained our community. You know, this is this is something that's been happened to us. And now we have a sense of community we've never had before that technology took away from us. I'm going to pause and share something really quick about that comment. This is going to be kind of an all-over-the-place rumination. I'm sorry, but I can't really go through this episode linearly because of how much it connects to itself. Please forgive me. I myself have commented on how much it would be nice to live in a community of, you know, a neighborhood or a sector or whatever where you actually could walk down the street and know the people you talk to, right? There's an appeal to that. However, um, I live in the, the current year and have lived in the current year for the entirety of its existence. This is a time and age where I can have a community with people I've never met before personally. I have a best friend who I am loyal to and is loyal to me and who I trust implicitly, who has never let me down through all the garbage I've been through and who has always tried to be there for him and everything he's been through. I've never met him in person. I don't even have plans to meet him in person. What I'm trying to get to here is that for all of... Because I've heard this argument used in real life. We are just moving away from a social structure. Do this, do, maybe the people who say that have different experiences than me. I am a very social person, so maybe I'm a little bit biased on this one. But I have tons of social interaction with people in person and long distance. I communicate with my mom daily. She lives literally the country away from me, complete opposite coast. Now, you might say, well, that wouldn't be a thing if you lived... No, no, If see, here's the thing. The thing that pisses me off about her base philosophy... Now, let me just go ahead and bluntly admit that I do not agree with her philosophy. Because, um, well, it's funny, the episode itself brings up the most basic reason not to agree with it. That reason is medical. I would be dead more than once over if I lived in this society, in the society of this stupid colony... I've had many medical problems over my life. Now, a couple of those were generated by some of the technology that exists now. In fact, I'd say one of them was. But for the most part, my body is simply not that good. I would have died. And what's funny, though, is I'm pretty sure I would have never actually been born because mom would have died. Or let's say we ended up there together. Well, then we just both die on the colony. Now, that's the core problem we're having here. If you were to see, the argument I usually hear is, wouldn't it be nice if your mother just lived down the road from you? Yeah, okay, that'd be nice. But um, there's a lot of things, like if you're asking me to give up indoor plumbing, if you're asking me to give up air conditioning, if you're asking me to give up regular access to antibiotics or the ability to go to the emergency room, if you're asking me to give up the ability to store and refrigerate food long term, Food preservation leapt forward just an enormous amount just within the last century. These are concepts that I feel that people who posit this argument don't really think about. And what's funny is this episode does think about them. It doesn't bring up the toilet thing, obviously, but the heat is a known problem. She flat out states they've had long winters, and in case you don't know what that means, that means bad crops or bad storage of prepared food which means people starved to goddamn death, because that's what happens when you have less technology. That's why food preparation and food... That's why food has been so integral to human society for all of its existence. Why so much of technological advancement for the last two millennia... Actually, they're probably closer to five. I'm not willing to put an exact number on here. I'm just angry. 
for the last several 10,000 years has been focused on the cultivation of, the trade of, and the preservation of, I suppose also the utilization of, food, crops, animals. <sighs> no, I'm, I'm not willing to give up these things to be able to live across the street from my mother. I am satisfied with having technology and talking to my mom every day. You know what? We share pictures. I know that sounds silly. I take pictures of my niece. Anytime there's something cool looking, you know, I just toss it to her. Just a quick text away. Boop. Now, that is not the same as being in person. But at the same time, do you understand my perspective on this? Alexis's mentality is mostly, in my opinion, incorrect because of its application and its extremity. The idea of you have to give up everything is ridiculous. The episode itself very briefly brings this up at the very end where they mention they might have to choose whether to leave or go. They might choose whether or not they can keep communications in the future. You know what? That makes more sense. This community should have the choice, the right to make that choice. That was a choice she was taking away from them, I remind you. Because, again, power. All about her control methods. But, I'm, God, I'm getting way off topic here. You know, why do they, how do they beam down to begin with? That actually bothers me a little. How did they manage to beam down through this EM field? Like, wouldn't you think that would cause issues? I guess it just prevents electromagnetic function, so I suppose beaming doesn't involve any EM whatsoever. I, I guess that makes degree of sense. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about her methods. This One of the writers who walked into this did so with personal experience with cults. With Now... Let's rewind a second. I want to clarify that word for a second. When I say the word cult, I want to stress that I mean that in a negative connotation. I want to make that very clear. The word cult is a very generic word, and, you, and, and it applied literally can mean a lot of things. When I say cult, I mean that as a bad thing, and I want to make that very clear. A cult, to me, is an enclosed society that is taking a particular ideology to an extreme and is exploiting its own people for the benefit of either the group or the individuals on top. Now, I know that could apply to a lot of things, and if you want to get all definition-y, you could get all definition-y. But as we talked about over in Measure of Man, there's a difference between the definition and reality. The reality of a cult is easy to spot if you're looking at it from the outside. Let's just be blunt about that. Okay? This is a cult. So, a lot of the methods that Alexis uses to try and assert control over the rest of the people are very textbook, and again, probably derived from personal experience. One of the very first things she does is she allows humorous suggestions and discussions about what's going on in the outside world, and then cuts it off because we have to get back to work. Why don't we get them rooms ready? And those rooms just happen to already have her books of her philosophy scattered throughout it, getting them an early glimpse into where she wants them. Um, then she, there, then we get back to the scene where Joseph, who I just want to slug in the face, says, oh man, we've regained our community. And he talks about it in a positive thing. And then immediately after that, we go to Meg, who is dying. Oh, who dies, actually, in this episode. By the way, real quick thing. You ever wonder what it's like, like what's going through the minds of the actors whose job is to say no words and then play a character who's dying? That's a semi-common thing in Star Trek. It's just, you're basically an extra at that point, right? Lay here, 
don't move, keep your eyes closed. Everyone's going to act around you, and then you're going to die. <laughs> okay. Anyways. So, <clears throat> she alphas constantly, because Alexis does. The next thing she mentions is she defines what they're doing as the application of human ingenuity. Now, I want to—I know I'm not the first person to make this point. In fact, I think I'm not even the third. But it's worth noting that the definitions aren't exactly reality-connected, as I just expl explained earlier. But the definition of technology is the application of human ingenuity, basically. Um, if I grab a stick, that is technology. Now, I bring this point up because it helps to serve as a highlight to some of the hypocrisy of the situation and further emphasizes what I mean by why I don't really emphasize with her point or her philosophy. The idea of limiting certain technology in your life makes sense. In fact, I'm surprised we don't see more of that in Star Trek. Off the top of my head, I can only think of two instances ever where someone felt that way. And both of the times they were basically crazed cult leaders. Once over in the original series, in my least favorite episode of the original series ever... I can't remember the name of it. It's, it's the way to Eden, I want to say. It's the hippie episode. And here with Alexis. That's it. You can't tell me. I mean, I guess we kind of see that a little bit with Cisco's dad. But even he's okay with beaming all over the place, right? The idea of deliberately limiting the amount of technology in your life to like a certain degree or disallowing certain types of text to live a certain lifestyle makes a lot of sense to me. That's not my problem with it. My problem with is with this application. And again, as I said earlier... I firmly believe that Alexis is doing this to not only establish, but to expand her own personal power. Remember, she did not give anyone a choice about this colony. She sabotaged it after planning for months in order to ensure that this would be the land where she would build her new empire of dirt. So... <clears throat> Then she insists that you should spend your time on something useful rather than trying to restore the technology. Then she says we're doing everything we can, which is a lie. And then she says you should remove your uniform. Now that is a recurring theme throughout the whole thing. It is a constant effort of hers to try and break Cisco by getting him to accept her control. Get out of your uniform. Get out of your uniform. And there's even practical reasons to do so. Point in fact, <laughs> it's actually funny. I think if Alexis wasn't trying so hard to break Cisco, he might have actually just taken the uniform off because it's actually impractical to have that uniform on in, in the current habitat they were having. It was clearly hot, warm, like summer days or whatever. That's very unpleasant. Hell, I wouldn't want to wear this outfit out and about right now. You know what I mean? I, I, when I used to have to actually go into an office, this was years and years ago at this point, you know, having to go in in full uniform was just kind of, ugh. Especially during the summer months, right? You know what I'm talking about. So, but he continues to refuse to. Um, by the way, I want to mention that this is like the fifth or so episode where the episode would have been a lot easier to solve if they had a real ship on hand. I'm just pointing that out because it's a really recurring trend in DS9. And I feel like the writers agreed with me on that. We'll get to that much later. <clears throat> so, then they get to the boxing. I've kind of caught myself back up. They put this kid in the box. Why do they put this kid in the box? Well, because he stole a candle. Now, based on the way they present this, we don't get a lot of information on this kid. I don't remember his name. But the idea is that this is a guy who has a problem. He might actually be kleptomaniac, or maybe he's just the kind of guy who is degenerate. He, he doesn't believe in communities or whatever. Which brings me to, to two questions. First of all, why was this kid on the calling ship to begin with? 
That's, that's a story that probably needs to be told. But second of all, it means that this is not his first offense and that this is not the only time he spent time in the box. And I want to stress, that box is torture. She makes a point of saying, we all agreed to this. I don't believe that. I don't. I believe that what happened was that at a certain point in time, they agreed they needed to have some kind of punishment. She suggested the box and then convinced the others to go along with it. That is not the same as if everyone... She likes to spin doctor things a lot. She likes to phrase things. There's even a scene where Cisco says, and forgive me for not remembering the word for it, Cisco says blah, and she says blah, blah, blah. And what they're both saying is the same thing. But he's saying it more bluntly, which paints it in a negative light, and she kind of segues around the words, putting it in a more positive light. Again, this gets back to that definitions thing earlier. Both people are saying the same thing, but the connotations are completely different. She does this constantly. So I don't believe for a second that the whole colony completely agreed as a universal democracy to go ahead and put people into a torture box. So one of the other interesting things I find is that Cisco is weirdly diplomatic throughout almost the entire episode, right up until he realizes that Cassandra was sent to him to screw him. To screw him into complacency. Let's just say that as bluntly as we can. The actress who played Cassandra, I can't remember her name, forgive me, she's, she's actually over on Babylon 5 as well. Um, the actress who plays her flat out stated that it was her belief and the belief through the script and through the director that her character, Cassandra, was someone who would do basically anything Alexis told her to. She's her mother figure after all. She's the one who takes care of her, watches after her. She's the leader. Alexis actually flat out says, I, these are not my followers. That is such a goddamn lie. Anywho, <clears throat> so... Cisco approaches Alexis that time, and he flat out calls her contemptible. Now, what I find interesting is he doesn't try a martial takeover. He probably understands that that's not feasible with a lack of technology on their hands and the fact that the other people are probably just a little bit too programmed to fight against, you know, to, to, to not go against him on this one. So rather than risk that, he decides to, well, he basically pulls a Gandhi, doesn't he? He refuses to bend knee. You can take the Night Watch, right? Oh, and you can work out in the fields, right? It's okay, we're so, so short-handed right now. It's a shame we don't have any technology to help with that. Sorry. It, th there is more complexity to the technology versus agrarian argument than this episode presents. I'm not really bringing it up because the episode doesn't. Again, the episode does not bring up a moral dilemma and then, ta and then let us figure it out for ourselves. That might have been an engaging episode. No, this is about an evil woman, and I'm going to say that as bluntly as I can, who is trying to assert her control, whether it's because she's a zealot or because she's a power-hungry word I'm not going to say. I'm really angry. Is this, is this getting across? You know, this is about her and about how she is horrible and about how this organization is horrible. So, having thus ensured that he would have to work you know, late in order to stand watch. By the way, what are they standing watch for? They never mention that. No animals are mentioned at all. It's worth noting that some of this episode, they really, really had issues with the sets on this episode. It was originally supposed to be a lot more expansive and a lot more open. I will give Corey Allen credit on that. He did a good job with making it look like it was outdoors in most areas, so props there. Regardless, what the hell are they defending against? Or is animal attacks in the night a regular problem that, to the point where you need a nightly watch? 
I mean, it's worth noting they literally don't actually have doors here, so maybe that's part of your security problem. Anyways, moving on. <clears throat> oh yeah, that's another thing. They don't have doors. Of course not. Doors just serve to shut us off from each other. We've got to build that community. Look, there are certain people in my life I am completely comfortable with, and I trust implicitly. There are four people like that in my, five, five people like that in my life. It's not a big circle. But if I were to presume for a moment that all five of us lived in the same house, I'd still close my door at night. <laughs> there is such a thing as privacy. There is such a thing as basic decency, rather than just, ah, I'm just going to walk in, hey. <clears throat> so, having been kept up all night, she says, you got to go out work on the fields, but you know, it's really hot out today. Maybe you should take that uniform off. I believe this is the third time she's mentioned the uniform thing at that point. <sighs> Kira and Dax help save them. It's kind of a side plot, and there's nothing really to say about it, although I do have to mention, again, a ship would have helped. It's funny to me that Alexis missed. She missed a star. It's funny to me because that makes perfect sense. It's harder to hit an object in space that's light years away, or not light, excuse me, uh, millions and millions of kilometers away than it sounds. I mean, that that is a logical thing. You missed my one degree, and whoops. And, of course, gravity is a thing, too, so I like that. But, um, again, <laughs> it's funny to me that she's like, I'm going to destroy this ship. Wee! Oh. She probably didn't even know. Anyways. <clears throat> By the way, the fact that she destroys the runabout is another, in my opinion, clear example of evidence for the fact that she was interested in control rather than her own belief system. Anyways. So... I just want to mention really quick, in the episode Unnatural Selection, which we've already covered this month, they managed to use captaincy codes and otherwise access to access another Federation ship remotely. Why don't they do that with the runabout? Instead, they could do one extremely dangerous thing or another extremely dangerous thing. Yeah. So then, I'm just going to continue piling evidence onto this pile here. Alexis comes out and says, hey, Meg's dead. I, and the way she says this is so blunt, it's actually something I'm not quite willing to give the episode credits on because it's a little too blatant. She comes and says, Meg has died. And she died believing in us and believing in this community. And you know what's against that? O'Brien. And then she drags O'Brien out. What, what the hell kind of spin doctoring is that? She goes from someone died. They're not exactly a large colony, by the way. So any death is significant. So someone died. Literally, the next sentence is is about how awesome we are and how O'Brien has caused this problem. She also passively implies that Meg's death came about because of O'Brien's actions. What are O'Brien's actions? What are his crimes? He was trying to get his technology working again. He was trying to access the comm badge, figure out what's going on with the, uh, uh, the duonetic dampener. That's his crime. I'm pretty lenient on a lot of things in life, but the idea of your crime being trying to leave in a society where, which you were not invited to, did not choose to be a part of, and have no desire to stay of, and do not belong in, doesn't really strike me as a crime. Now, I see, again, this gets back to my point, because this is, in her mind, a magnificent crime, a huge crime. Because this is a crime of disobeying her. And worse, encouraging others to disobey her. There's even a point where Joseph talks in his defense. But Joseph does it in the most passive, just 
pansy ass way possible. Oh, well, maybe he was just trying to get a ship to get medical supplies. Now, that's funny because that's actually probably true. But that's the biggest defense he could possibly levy against this horrible crime. And she embraces, she says, yes, absolutely. That's great that you're admitting your weakness in thinking that. What? And then, of course, she tells Cisco, no, I'm putting you in the box. You're his commanding officer. You go in there. Because remember, she wants to break him. Cisco is let out. You ever really sweat, really be truly dehydrated in life? I have, more than once. It's an incredibly horrible experience. I, I can't actually describe it in words. Um, the delirium, you, you tend to lose a bit of control of yourself as your body just starts taking over the need to consume water. Um, it's not pleasant. So then she's, she comes out, and of course this is where the, the, uh, the carrot part of the carrot and the stick thing comes in. She's like, I want to give you water. I want to give you food and clothes. All you have to do is change out of your uniform. All you have to do is what I, exactly what I tell you to. And then it'll all be better. This is for your own good. Join us. Join us. That leads to what is, in my opinion, the best scene in the episode, and the scene that really helps salvage it. Cisco stutters out, and rather than cowing tow, rather than kneeling, let's just call it what it is, to her, he, of his own accord and volition, walks back into torture and probable death rather than, being, rather than submitting to this evil. It reminds me of a quote that some of you will appreciate. Evil must be opposed. I like the O'Brien escape scene. It's funny because it ties into not only O'Brien as a character, but what he was talking about in the beginning of the runabout. I wasn't really an engineer until I was in the middle of the Cardassian War. You know, I had to figure stuff out on the fly. That makes sense because that is O'Brien's strength. He's not like LaForge who can, who can dream up diagrams in his head and design engines and improve them. He's not like Scotty who can invent brand new technologies and completely push the edge of what is possible. He's the one who could take two rocks, excuse me, three rocks, and make a goddamn compass out of it, like he does in this episode. At the beginning, there's this bit about, oh, I hope you've been able to find more of those unused skills. It turns out he did. He is very good at making do with what he has. It's that adaptability that he's really good at. And I love that showcasing, because not only does he do that with the tech, he does that with the combat. But again... He's a veteran soldier, so that makes sense. I keep pointing this out because too often Star Trek seems to forget the backstories of its own characters. Even TNG does that. Voyager has done that many times as well. Enterprise does this all over the place. It's nice to see some consistency in the way some of the characters are portrayed here in DS9. Then... Then comes my least favorite scene of this goddamn episode. I'm, I'm trying really hard not to yell because I know that's just going to make the mic blow out, it's going to hurt your ears, and that's not going to help anyone, but I am livid at the end of this episode. There is this slowly swelling, heroic music that beats in the background as Alexa speechifies to her people, having been found out, having kidnapped these people, having been a willing accomplice to the deaths of these people, even though she had it in her power to help them. Even, and, and her continual brainwashing and tyranny and other garbage that she's doing. And she basically just admits it all flat out without shame or pity and then justifies all of it with her own bullcrap. 
and the whole time the episode frames it as if she's got a point. And then the colonists universally, 100% of them, decide to stay, even though several of them were already questioning and thinking about leaving. What? You know what really pisses me off? I, I mean, I, I don't actually have much else to say about that. The, 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 her spin doctoring is just the culmination of all the crap I've been talking about with her for this whole episode. But what really gets to me is how Joseph's like, no, she's right. We've got a community here. Now, let me hear, let me, let me speak in defense of that. If it was a choice, I, I'm really big on choice. I think that's obvious by now. If it was a choice, okay. But show some of them leaving. Show some of them choosing to leave. Show some of them thinking maybe we should do this. Does anyone else notice that the episode ends with a shot of the kids, who aren't even questioned on this one about what they want to do, and a shot of the torture box, which is just still hanging out there? I'm sorry. I don't have much else to say. This episode aggravates me so much. I apologize for my ire. Thankfully, we're finally past it. I've been dreading talking about this episode ever since I first agreed to do Star Trek DS9. So we're there. I, I don't have much else to say because the episode doesn't actually have any moral dilemma that's worth talking about. We could sit here and discuss the reality of technological regression or avoidance. Uh, survivalism we could talk about. We could talk about uh, communities. We could talk about the relevance of choice in, in external interaction. Should we open up to the outside world? Should we have coordination with people going back and forth? Those are all worthwhile topics that aren't brought up. Because that's not what the episode's about. The episode barely even mentions these concepts. No. No, this is, this is just about Alexis and her goddamn cult. So I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this. And I'll see you guys next week. I don't know what it is, but by God, it's going to be better than this. So, see you around, guys.